Podcast, the podcast of the Carnival, Sideshow, and Burlesque. You're just in time. We're going to have a free show. We're going to bring up the strange people, the weird people. Here they come now. Watch the doorway. You'll see what they do. You'll hear what they talk about. They're all alive on the inside. Get your ticket and come in. Ballycast presents news and interviews with performers and showmen. Some important words of warning, this podcast is not family-friendly. I'm not even thinking about it, so listen at your own risk. The performances and stunts described are not safe, even for experienced performers. Never attempt them without the direct supervision of someone who already performs them. Please use your common sense, and if you don't have any, stop listening now. Welcome to Ballycast, episode 140. I'm your host, Wayne Kaiser. Ballycast is brought to you free by Blue Ridge Entertainment, publisher of books, CDs, DVDs, and more for showmen, performers, and fans of the Sideshow and Carnival. Today's show is another Best of Ballycast show, made up mostly of clips from past episodes, including Eric Sprague, better known as Lizard Man. Any sideshow performer that can discuss what Wittgenstein would think of his act has got a lot of depth. Well, we all drown in the deep end, though, right? <laughs> Nobody drowns in the shallow end of the pool. <laughs> also, minstrel shows. Studies of it invariably get caught up in the deep and ugly strain of racism that permeated the genre. I don't intend to overlook or excuse the racism, but I do think it's worth a careful effort to analyze it for exactly what it was, to understand how it was seen then, and to look at its legacy in entertainment. And a repeat visit, if you dare, to a lost city deep underground. The lost city of the lizard men. I'm a stranger here myself. It's Ballycast. Here we go. Keep your hands and arms inside the car and remain seated until the ride comes to a complete stop. I have to apologize to all of my listeners for the tone of my last episode. I was and remain very dismayed at the way the next election is shaping up. When considering problems like this, the best tools are time, distance, and perspective, and I definitely live in the wrong town to be immune to that kind of anger. I don't take back a thing, not one word, but hey, in the back of my mind, I thought I should remember. You can gripe all you like. You can sneer, where are the heroes? You can shout about how everything's a lie. Then that flag goes by. You can gripe at the greed, at the need to be a winner, at the hype you keep hearing from on high. And you think, why try? And you wanna cry. Then that flag goes by. And you think, that's why. That's the best idea. That's a really good idea. What you wanna do is brag. I'm part of that. Yeah, I know it's just a flag. Okay, but still. For a minute you say, hey, we could, we will fix everything tomorrow. For a minute you're aware, you're feeling proud. 
crowd And then suddenly you're staring at the crowd And you're thinking there's no link I can see they're as different from me As they possibly could be Then you see the Ourselves tomorrow, we're in charge. We've a voice, an idea about tomorrow to remember when the flag has gone. Bye. I can't go forever without including advertising in Ballycast, so please understand the occasional commercial break. It's a hot Saturday night on a sawdust lot in the 1960s. Look, look through the doorway. They're looking at the mule-faced girl. You're going to look. You're walking with your friends past the ten-in-one, the gorilla show, the girl show, the games, and the rides. These are the original ballets for the shows, the freaks, attractions you'll never see again. From the original 8-track loops discovered in a junk shop, plus recreated ballets from the real old-time scripts. You got a good arm, buddy. That would have been a winner, sir. Three balls, just three dollars. Win a big bear for your girl. Everybody, watch how this man does it. You can get two tracks free at cdbaby.com. First time shown in your city, and you may never have the chance to see it again. Alive, 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 the deadly piranhas. $10,000 reward, if not absolutely alive, never before shown, and you may never have the chance to see it again. The most the Shoot the Star game and baseball game tracks are downloadable free, and you can download the rest of the album for $9.99, or buy the full CD from CD Baby or GoodMagic.com. Our girls are going to show you just a little of what they do in the big show inside. Everybody say hello to Misty Morn. She's hotter than the 4th of July. She's got all the things you like a girl to have, and she knows what to do with them. Show them, Misty. A few episodes ago, I recommended a fascinating book, Hubert's Freaks by Gregory Gibson. The book is a far-ranging account of a collector bookseller's discovery of a whole collection of undocumented Diane Arbus photos of the performers in Hubert's Museum, a freak show that occupied a Times Square basement for many years. And in the interview that month, I excerpted a few seconds of a 1965 grind tape played on the street outside to attract customers. What's going on right now? Hurry along. Hurry along. Come on in. You're just in time. There is no waiting. 
There is no delay. This is a continued show. I think right you're just in time. Just in the case that you may have lost track of time, this is 42nd Street. This is Times Square. This is the only live show to be found in Times Square area, may I remind you, for the last 17 years. Hubert's Museum have been in business for 41 long years and 1965. On the 17th of January makes it possible people who come in here, who really know the place, they have no doubt, and if you watch, you will notice that people will walk right off 42nd Street straight to the rear, they'll buy themselves a ticket, and they'll go in to see the show. You know why? Because they know the type of show that we have presented for a number of years. We change these shows every two weeks, and we bring to you new faces and new acts. And I would like to say that we take pride and pleasure in presenting to ladies and gentlemen, dancing girls, ladies who dance, really know how to dance. And some of you may not know, and I shall remind you, that dancing girls are extra added attractions. Otherwise, there is an extra fee to see the dancing girls. Now, you may say, well, what I'm going to spend 50 cents to see? Six live human beings, and they are entertainers, and they are professional entertainers, and you will find them all over this big United States, the Dominion of Canada, and some of them even travels to Europe. So, ladies and gentlemen, I would like very much to say we would love to have you here because we know you will enjoy the show. And whatever time that you have, We'd love to have you to come down to see and enjoy something that is most unusual. Now, what do you say? Let's all go to the big show. It is for ladies and gentlemen. Shut up. Hello. We're right here in the rear. We have the biggest and the best show in town. And it's alive, living, as you or I. It's like dying going to heaven. If you pray, you'll get to heaven. If you have 50 cents, you'll get in here. Hurry along, hurry along, hurry along, hurry along. Come in. It is showtime in Hubert's Museum. Just in the case you don't know, I am the MC of the show, and I would like very much to remind each and every one that we have six live acts. I'm going to tell you some of the things that we have down here that perhaps you may be a bit interested in. We have the Daggers of Death. That is where you take and you place anyone into a long casket-shaped box. And we drive down through that box 23 pieces of steel. You will stand there, you will sweat a little bit, you'll become very nervous, and at the same time you'll become very happy when you really understand how it's done. Then we will also show you a lady in a goldfish bowl, which is the most terrific thing you've ever looked at in your life. Last but not least, you will meet, see, and enjoy the Collins Mansion. That was two old Harmon, who was located at 128th Street and 5th Avenue in the heart of Harlem. These men was more than wealthy, and they both lived out of what we may call uh, the garbage pail, meaning whatever they could buy, or whatever they could rake, or whatever they could uh, borrow, or whatever they could pick up here and there. That is the way they went on. And when death came to these two men, early in 1939, they found over $500,000 plus interest on property in Wall Street. 
So you see, that's a show in itself. Then you will see the electric chair and anyone may face by being seated in the chair. And I would like very much to remind you of that. It is most outstanding. Besides the exhibits that I've just mentioned a moment ago, you will have the pleasure of six live living entertainers. Now, in the meantime, we change the show every two weeks, and we bring to you new acts and new attractions, freaks, curiosities, people from all parts of the world. But to tape it off and make it really nice, we take pride and pleasure in presenting to you lovely dancing girls, including Princess Wago with her big snakes. Now, let's all go to the show and have fun. There is no delay. This is a continued show. The book speaks very fondly of the manager, Charlie Lucas, who was manager for many years and performed sideshow stunts as Woo Fu, along with his wife, Virginia, known as Woogie. And what I failed to catch was that Charlie was also the outside talker. And this tape is his own oddball bally. He figures so strongly in the book that I have to give him some extra points because so much about Hubert's was shaped by his unique character. And his bally, odd as it is, worked well enough to bring in customers from busy Times Square. I mention this oversight of mine mostly because it started me thinking about the attraction sideshow arts have for young modern performers and the difficulty audiences have in placing sideshow performance into the framework with which they view other performances like a concert or a movie. Just on first thought, when you tell someone you're a sideshow performer, it's likely they think, this person just wants to be weird. How many tattoos and piercings does he or she have hidden under his shirt, or worse, under his pants? Or, more simply, show off. But for me, Gibson's book linked up some cultural connections and put sideshow arts in a very interesting new perspective. It reminded me that it might be wise to look at sideshow performance skills as folk art. Folk art is as noble a branch of the fine arts as any other. The public is already familiar with folk art in the form of folk music, but it goes way beyond that. The medicine show, with its purpose lectures, its drama and comedy, drew from deep and established folk tradition, in no way separate from what the music world now cherishes as an honored part of its heritage. The sideshow's time-tested, traditional lectures and acts and scripts shared from performer to performer across the country can be thought of the same way. And new sideshow acts, even the most outrageous, fit very comfortably in with the old classics, as comfortably as new folk music fits into the traditional repertoire when considered as, as one local radio show host puts it, traditional music and music in the traditions. Sideshow arts also fit into what the fine art world calls naive art or outsider art, a slightly odd sister of the untutored paintings of Grandma Moses, or the yard sculptures and wooden Indians valued at multi-thousands by galleries and antiques collectors. There are so many examples of this sort of art, from tiny paintings to massive works of architecture and earthworks that express something irresistible in the souls of their obsessed artists. I think of a marvelous outsider artwork in Washington's National Museum of American Art. It's a set of furniture and ceremonial objects that seem to come from Mars, entirely covered in aluminum foil and cryptic inscriptions, 
built over a period of 14 years in the 40s and 50s by a janitor after work in a rented garage. He called it the throne of the third heaven of the nation's millennium general assembly and left a set of notebooks in an invented alphabet to accompany it. But even without any explanation or any framework to understand it, it just knocks me over from the purity of its fevered vision. This artist did this not for scholarship or money or fame. He did it because he had to. I've sat before it for hours, and I really think that if God ever comes to earth for a visit, that's where he'll sit. But we never ask such an artist, explain your work to me. What are you trying to express? Many sideshow performers have told me that even though there's no rational reason to walk on broken glass or sink hooks into their flesh, they do it because they have to. Their acts speak all they have to say. As in all art, the work is the expression. If the artist had anything more to say, he'd say it in the work, not in words. Reach out past the easy bounds of everyday cultural discourse. To really understand, let's look at one more little-known connection. And it's also detailed in Gibson's book about Hubert's. From folk music to victory in the civil rights struggle to, wouldn't you just know it, sideshow. Gibson refers to the great rock critic Greil Marcus's book, The Old Weird America. Marcus speaks of that deep well of myth and music I've already mentioned, that among the public, especially the rural public, through folk music and arts, notable events aren't just news, they aren't just stunts, they are acts instantly transformed into legends, facts that instantly transform everyday life into myth. How easily that can describe a sideshow act, right there, five feet from you, in what you thought was going to be an ordinary day, someone performs a feat that lifts that day into one you'll remember the rest of your life. Marcus also describes how, in 1952, Harry Smith issued the Anthology of American Folk Music. Eighty-four songs gathered from the hills and the fields and the prisons. And that anthology became the primary source material for the entire popular folk revival of the 1950s. And that, in turn, became the key that unlocked much of white academic America's willingness to get behind the civil rights movement. This is art changing America, without any planned effort to do so, without any organized structure to manipulate it. Now, I'm not going to stop interviewing. I want to get to know the people of Carnival and Sideshow and Burlesque. I want to hear their stories and what they care to express in words. But in the future, I'm going to be more open to taking the performances I see just on their own terms. And with almost no effort, if we're willing, it'll be easier to stop asking so many questions and see more clearly the entirely individual and essentially human core that goes way beyond the bounds of packaged entertainment. A childhood memory and a story. We're going to stray pretty far from the sideshow, but before this segment is over, we'll be right back in the middle of it. Let's go back to the late 1950s and very early 1960s. The early years of the television era, but not the very earliest. I'm 10 years old, 
and hooked on television. And since my mother teaches piano in the home in the afternoons, I'm blessed with unlimited access to the television for its best and highest use, a free babysitter. I'm in a major urban area. We have four television stations beaming entertainment out to us from 6 a.m. to 11 p.m. And then a miracle. As is happening in so many areas across the country, the Channel 2 through 13 VHF band is joined by the till then unused in my area UHF band, and we get a fifth station. It's independent. It's starved for material. They'll try anything they can get cheaply. Wrestling, bowling, the bullfights from Mexico, and a new network that was there one month broadcasting cheesy Vegas lounge acts and then gone forever. But like hundreds of new little stations all over the country, they're looking frantically for more material, very much as cable would do in later years. And suddenly, producers of syndicated shows were selling truckloads of old film and looking for more. And among the producers who were ready with film to sell was Jack Douglas, creator and host of a show called I Search for Adventure, which mined the great pool of existing footage available from speakers who traveled the lecture circuits, narrating 16-millimeter films of their travels to exotic locales. These men and women took their cameras and trunks full of 16-millimeter Kodachrome to Hawaii or Bora Bora or Argentina and brought back hours of film they edited into visuals for an evening's two-hour lecture anywhere they could book a paying engagement. The public would still go out of its way then and pay to see exotic curiosities in bright color on a big screen narrated by a good lecturer. Is this starting to sound like something from a sideshow? And all that film made spectacular television at almost no budget. And I Search for Adventure, its handful of episodes running again and again on the new local UHF channel, is where I was particularly captivated by one of their regular guests, Romaine Wilhelmsen, known in the travel biz as the Legend Hunter. Wilhelmsen was the Indiana Jones of the travel circuit. Movie star handsome and a compelling storyteller, he went on his own to the wilds of Mexico and South America against all advice, first following the legend of Pizarro, who scoured the deserts and mountains of Peru 500 years ago looking for Inca gold. Pizarro found his gold, but he passed over empires that had long since been buried in the jungles and sands, civilizations forgotten by all but a handful of the local wise men. I was riveted by Wilhelmsen's tales about finding the remains of lost civilizations to which he was led by reluctant, fear-filled Indians. His films showed overgrown cities in the jungle, built over dark passages into the mountains, especially one scene that lingered to show a stone stairway leading down into the darkness, and my imagination raced for days dreaming about the treasures and horrors just out of sight made even more vivid by his statement that he was unable to explore the tunnels, unable to go down the staircase because of limited resources and skittish guides. What was hidden down there? What was lurking? We'll never know, but I'll always remember the mystery because how could I doubt? There it was in living color. A sideshow ten-in-one moment for certain. 
I was fortunate enough to meet Wilhelmson once when he was lecturing at the largest auditorium in Richmond, Virginia, about 1970. I only had a moment backstage to shake his hand and thank him for some vivid childhood dreams from his appearances on I Search for Adventure. He was amazed that anyone remembered. I can tell you that, like the sights you'll see behind that curtain, I'll remember it to the longest day I live. Here's a story ripped straight from the headlines, or at least the headlines from a January 1934 L.A. Times. I'll tell it in what might be a more appropriate setting. Now, friends, that's not all, not by a long shot. I have a special attraction unlike anything you've ever heard, an added attraction we don't advertise on the outside because the laws of your community forbid us to. But for just one dollar, what you'll see and hear when you follow me behind this curtain is something you'll be telling your neighbors about tomorrow. But you'll be telling it in whispers and telling yourself it couldn't be true. But here it is, right inside this part of the tent, and you'll see with your own eyes a sight that makes women faint and grown men shudder. Follow me. This story was only legend until a man named George Schufelt proved its truth beyond a doubt with scientific methods and modern technical equipment. You'll see the newspaper reports and Schufelt's own map and photographs of the area on the podcast page. Los Angeles, California is one of the busiest and most famous cities in the world. But its residents and tourists little realize that they stand and walk just a few feet above a lost underground city, its tunnels and catacombs filled with treasure, once and perhaps still inhabited by the descendants of its builders, whispered about by the Indians and feared by those who discovered the lost city of the lizard men. Schufelt, an engineer, developed a radio X-ray device intended for detecting minerals and tunnels below the surface of the ground. But in his first explorations with it, he detected a pattern of tunnels and vaults, forming a lost city. He was testing his device on rented property on a hill that looked over Sunset Boulevard. And at first, he didn't understand why the radio X-ray was showing what it very clearly showed. I knew I was over a pattern of tunnels, the engineer explained to the newspaper. And I had mapped out the course of the tunnels, the position of large rooms scattered along the tunnel route, as well as the position of deposits of gold. But I couldn't understand the meaning of it. Then Schufelt was taken to Little Chief Greenleaf of the Medicine Lodge of the Hopi Indians in Arizona. The chief told him of a legend which confirms exactly what he says he's found. According to the legend, the radio x-ray shows the location of one of three lost cities on the Pacific coast, dug by the lizard people to shelter them from a great catastrophe which occurred about 5,000 years ago. The lost city, 
dug with powerful chemicals by the lizard people, connects with the ocean, where the daily tides force air into the tunnels, providing ventilation and an escape route should the lizard men need it. Large rooms riddle the hills above the secret city, and its central room holds a map of all parts of the city and to its records, which are written on golden tablets, each one four feet long and fourteen inches wide. On one of those tablets of gold, the legend says, will be found the lost history of the Mayas. On another is found the record of the origin of the human race. Schufelt says he has taken X-ray pictures of 37 such tablets. My radio X-ray pictures of the subsurface voids and of gold tablets are scientific proof of their existence. But the legend story must remain a legend until we excavate next year by sinking a thousand-foot tunnel into the heart of the city. Did strange people live and build under the site of modern-day Los Angeles? Indeed, do they still live? These are the maps, the diagrams, and the photographs. Judge for yourself. It's a hot Saturday night on a sawdust lot in the 1960s. Look, look through the doorway. They're looking at the mule-faced girl. You're going to look. You're walking with your friends past the ten-in-one, the gorilla show, the girl show, the games, and the rides. These are the original ballets for the shows, the freaks, attractions you'll never see again. From the original 8-track loops discovered in a junk shop, plus recreated ballets from the real old-time scripts. You got a good arm, buddy. That would have been a winner, sir. Three balls, just three dollars. with a big bear for your girl. Everybody, watch how this man does it. You can get two tracks free at cdbaby.com. First time shown in your city, and you may never have the chance to see it again. Alive, alive, alive. The deadly piranhas. $10,000 reward. If not, absolutely alive. Never before shown, and you may never have the chance to see it again. The most The Shoot the Star game and baseball game, game tracks are downloadable free. Links to the free tracks are on the podcast webpage. And you can download the rest of the album for $9.99 or buy the full CD from CD Baby or GoodMagic.com. Our girls are going to show you just a little of what they do in the big show inside. Everybody say hello to Misty Morn. She's hotter than the 4th of July. She's got all the things you like a girl to have and she knows what to do with them. Show them, Misty. Eric Sprague, better known to millions as Lizard Man, can be defined so many ways. He's a living work of art, he earned a B.A. with honors in philosophy, and he left his doctoral work in order to pursue his ideas in action as a performance artist. If you want to know more and search Google or YouTube under Body Modification, you'll get photos and videos all right, one after the other in dismaying parade titled Shocking Body Modifications or Twelve Unbelievable Extreme Body Modifications, but there's so much more to the idea than that. If you want to approach the topic without being told what to think, check out Sprague's website. It's straightforward to the point of bare-bones simplicity, but every link is a gem, including an FAQ setting forth some weighty ideas on the matter, and a pay-what-you-want 207-page downloadable book 
called Once More Through the Modified Looking Glass that reprints his many columns from BME News. Sprague's physical appearance is just one part of a lifelong project in body-based performance art, particularly exploring all of the various things it means to be human. This all comes together in a philosophy called modern primitivism, a concept that encompasses body modifications, rituals, and stressors as paths to self-definition, paths to altered spiritual states, and ways to explore one's own psychology. Eric led me on a merry chase through his own history and through the philosophical and practical aspects of body modification. Eric Sprague. Yes. Wayne Kaiser with the Ballycast Podcast. Good to hear from you. Well, thank you. I'm glad you think so. I have to ask, are you a Ballycast listener? Uh, I've listened to portions of episodes, but I'm, I'm not a regular listener. I don't listen to a lot of podcasts. I was hoping that the podcast would be compelling enough to rivet your attention every time. <laughs> well, it's always good when I do manage to remember to go in and listen, so I could say that, but I mean, I don't want to give a false impression here. I'm not going to suck up. <laughs> Oh, come on. I'll accept completely undeserved praise. <laughs> but you're very, we all? you're very kind to take a call when you're just home from what appears to be an extended European tour. It was a really, really nice run. Yeah, it was seven weeks in London on the South Bank. So not so much a tour as it was one spot, but it's a, it was a really, really good spot. For the entire seven weeks, did you do essentially the same show? Uh, yeah, well, what we had was we had our core cast, which was Shane Holtgren, the space cowboy out of Australia, and myself. So one of us are there all the time. Through the entire run, any show that was performed would have at least one of us in it, sometimes both of us in it. Then we had a cast of about another 12 to 15 people that would come in and out to different parts. So as we would say on stage, the show can change week to week, day to day, even hour to hour. So we invite you to come back and Ask at the ticket stand to see who's on. Come inside. So you've seen all of our amazing acts here at Wonderground. So, yeah, we we had very similar show, and very often, like, on a weekday, because on a weekday, our hours of operation were generally only about four or five hours. We'd have one cast do a whole day. But on, say, a Saturday or a Sunday, we would at least split it in half, so we'd have two different casts throughout the day. And sometimes we would have performers here and there jump in and out as the schedule would warrant. So you enjoyed being there? Oh, I, I loved it. It's fantastic. You know, um, London is a, to me, it's a great city to, to be in as a, as a tourist, especially when you're a, a working tourist getting paid to, to go around. Because of, you know, I'm, a, I'm a museum and a zoo buff, and they have some of the best in the world. Let me ask you about your repertoire. You do a lot of the usual stuff. I brought in this quote from Shock Doc who said, I think there are very few people who aren't doing things from the same library of stuff. And these things will slay audiences, but I'm looking out for the new and original. Do you do anything new and original? Well, I think that a lot of times what new and original comes down to, in a lot of cases, is actually presentation. Yes, you can swallow a sword, you can do the human blockhead. I mean, you know, I've got probably at least a dozen or more different versions of the blockhead for different situations. I've got my stand-up comedy one where it's, you know, kind of a lived-out sketch with a fork and my nose talking to a police officer. I've got a very traditional one which sort of talks history and references Melvin Burkhart. 
Uh, I've got sort of absurdist ones. And then there's all the different things that different people put into their nose and, and different things like that. There's different moves. There's a move I've been doing for a while that I don't know. I've never actually seen anybody else do it. I think that somebody else has to sort of figure it out. But with the blockhead, sort of like the drop with sword swallowing, I've got a screwdriver that I can get balanced in at just the right level. And then with a little bit of a shift, I can make it drop so I can control when it drops the rest of the way in, gives a little gas. But I think there's little things like that. Oh, also, um, this past year, I started doing a no-hands version of a blockhead where I end up balancing the nail on a stool in front of me and then slamming my face down onto it. Oh! So that it goes into my skull via the blockhead and standing back up. So, I mean, it's still the blockhead. You know, are we counting new and original presentations as different? Because if so, you know, I try to reinvent most of the stunts that I do at least every year or two. That counts for something because, by and large, all the blockheads I've seen so far have been one version or another of Melvin Burkhardt's act. Right. Or, you know, they've got the the follow-up, you know, with the drill, which, of course, you know, I still do from time to time. I mean, it depends. I think um, I'm trying to think now, like, in terms of, like, well, something like Gavage, which I don't think is all that standard. I mean, used to be if you got the three people who've done it in a room, you had all of them in the world, or at least the voluntary ones. We're not going to count medical patients, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, I came up with a, a color change version of that, doing, you know, different colored liquids on the outside going in the tube so I could mix them up to create different colors as it bring them back up. You know, so it's just basically is taking the color wheel theory and turning it and combining it with the gavage into this sort of absurdist art act. It's like the um, old magicians think a drink act. Right. What you've just described is definitely an advance over the, gee, well, more shock value act. Well, I see, I've never liked doing shock stuff anyway. In fact, that's, and it's not something like I'm not trying to take credit. I think there's always been humor inside you. I mean, you just look at Melvin's routine, right? Yeah. The thing was, is that whether or not the humor is at the forefront. And I think that, you know, one of the things I can say of the way I've always structured my acts and my shows is that for me, it hasn't been humor to soften shock. It's been shock to add to humor. You know, whereas I think that the presentation like Melvin's, it's still all about the nail going in the face. Mm-hmm. But there's a couple of jokes that soften the blow to the audience. Whereas I prefer to, to structure it the other way. I prefer to go for the, the humor is the primary thing. And then the stunt has to add to it or be something different. And I mean, that's not something I could do right off the beginning. It's only in the last few years that I feel I've really started to live up to my goal of writing material that can stand on its own without the stunt. But if the stunt is added to it, furthers it along. You know, I don't want my joke to be, hey, I'm getting iron into my system. You know, Melvin's a little bit like that. I want the jokes that I do when I'm swallowing swords or shoving a fork in my face or whichever act it is to be an act I can go into any comedy club in the world and tell and get a good laugh without actually having to do the stunt. So that when I do do the stunt with it, it simply adds to it. It becomes a synergistic effect between the two. But I start with the humor and then go to the stunt instead of the other way around. When people see you, what do you want them to see? If it's true, as I've told my children, anything you wear is your costume. If you go down the street in a gorilla suit, people will say, look at the gorilla. If you go down the street in an idiot suit, they'll say, look at the idiot. (laughs) What do you want them to see? The the great thing about the idea behind doing what I've done with the heavy modification, it's more about seeing what they will do than wanting to provoke a reaction out of them. 
what you put something out there, you have no control over how people react to it. No matter what you do, no matter how hard you try to make it one thing or another, there's going to be somebody that sees it differently. They're going to interpret it. So instead of trying to force a specific reaction out of someone, I find it more interesting to find out what their reactions are by just waiting to see what they are and putting stuff out. So it's not a matter of I'm doing this to get you to do that. It's I'm doing this to see how you react. And then based on your reaction, I can cater to you. It actually works for me very well in sort of a, a theatrical theory setting as well for a performance. When I walk out on stage without doing anything, just simply by walking out being how I am, modified as I am, the audience reacts to me. And their reaction is the tell, it's the read, it's my clue into how I'm going to reach them, react and deal with them. You know, a lot of people will talk about reading the crowd and, you know, picking what material they're going to do on the fly. Well, I get this great barometer by their faces and initial reaction just by stepping out in front of them. You know, I don't have to have a feeler joke or a feeler piece at the beginning to see which direction I'm going to go with them. I can tell that just by walking out and seeing it in their eyes. I'm like, okay, I know what kind of crowd you are and which direction, which material I'm going to go with. The most recent photo of you I've seen was you're talking to the crowd with your back pretty much turned, and uh, Sylvester Stallone is the foreground, and the kids in the crowd are pretty much ignoring him and very, very thrilled to talk to you. Yeah, there's actually the two little girls that were right in front of me in those pictures. Those are Stallone's uh, girls. Oh! And he, he brought them to the show. He's very cool. Um, yeah, I was on the inside. Was, uh, the way that our rotation worked that particular day was I would come out five minutes before showtime, do one more really hard pitch, turn them, and get them coming. Because what we found with there, and I mean, this is crowd psychology everywhere, but it was particularly strong in uh, in London for this run was if we would sell enough people to fill up our ramp, we would have them stand below the ramp, and then we would bring them up. Bringing them up the ramp got us a little bit of a, a push at the ticket box. You know, a few people would go like, oh, they're, they're moving up. So we moved them in stages. We very carefully had this three-stage move before we got them actually coming inside, and each one would draw us a few more people out of the crowd, and then we would go out and do this really hard sell and turn them. And I would get off the mic, run inside, start the music as the crowd would come in and get seated. And so I didn't actually know that he was in the theater when we first started the show because I'm up there welcoming him and, and doing the first act. And as I introduced the next act to come to the stage, uh, our guy who had been doing the outside talking after I had come in, would come around the back, get ready for his spot in the show. And he was like, oh, did you see that A-lister that just came in and slid in the back? And I'm like, no, who wasn't? He goes, that's Stallone. He's got his kids here. And apparently, as they were going by, the kids were really excited by the front, and that's what drew them in and over. Uh, I mean, obviously, we had uh, Ariel. It was Ariel Manx, yeah, that was outside talking. He said he was watching it, and he's like, yeah, I didn't sell those tickets. The the front did, and the kids getting excited. And uh, so they just came right up, and they slid in the back row. They just No fuss was made or anything like that. Until after the show, we kind of hopped out and went out. And of course, people were kind of mobbing onto Stallone and whatever, talked to him and getting photos. But, you know, as we came down the ramp, people sort of looked around and we did the, you know, the obligatory photo with Sly. And then his kids started asking me questions. So I just stood there for about four or five minutes asking questions. And yeah, the entire crowd kind of gathered around. And for a minute, he faded off to the side because they were all watching his kids talk to the strange, funny green man from the sideshow. <laughs> Anybody ever think it's all grease paint and eyebrow pencil? 
It's very, very rare, and they're usually drunk or otherwise impaired, but every now and then I'll get somebody who just absolutely will not accept it. I don't mind so much if they argue with me because I've figured out there is something worse. Like the people who come up to me and go like, that's not real. I go, yes, it is. That's not real. Yes, it is. I'd rather do that than uh, I've had, and this is on two occasions, one of them just being in London a few weeks ago, little old woman walk up to me, she looks me up and down, smile, and I'm tries to smile and you'll know, be polite, you know, nothing, no words said, but literally this has happened twice, lick their hands and rub them on my arm, just rub spit on my arm as if they thought it was going to rub off. To which I'm thinking, number one, what if it did rub off and you just ruined my makeup? What kind of a horrible old bitch are you? But beyond that, it's like, how do you go around just rubbing your spit on people? I mean, I was so shocked both occasions that I just basically froze up and they walked away. I can think of, you know, the occasional cute girl that I wouldn't mind. Right. And on the body modification online magazine that you write for, there's at least one person that has used makeup to imitate you for their Halloween costume. Oh, yeah, yeah, yep. Yeah, I've had a, a few people. It's um, usually if I'm at a festival or performing somewhere like Ripley's in Orlando, I forget when their anniversary was. It's in the last couple of years. But whenever they set up a face painting booth, there's usually a few kids running around with Lizard Man face paint on. And every Halloween, I, I see, you know, at least a couple of people send me pictures and videos. You know, who, who knows how many do it without sending me the photos and the videos. But yeah, you know, I, at moments, I'm a popular costume face paint. But you started the tattooing a long time ago. I can never remember when my first tattoo started. It was either December of 93 or January of 94. It was in the winter and it was during uh, a college break. That was my senior year of college. So this year's was 20 years ago. This has been the major project, you know, of my adult life. You know, essentially my entire adult life has been the development of and being Lizard Man. To what end? Um, to the end of having a fun life, to, to the end of enjoying myself and along the way supporting myself, ideally. Would it be accurate to say to be who you are? Absolutely. That's, uh, that's a lot more accurate and succinct than my little ramblings right there. That's actually perfect. Well, I don't know. I mean, you've got, you've got some deep thought in it, uh, as is clear from everything from your website to the video you've got on, I think it's the Huffington Post. From your philosophy major, almost philosophy doctorate, I would assume that much of what you've written in yep. your Q&A on your website is things that you've learned since. Oh, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. You know, give you a pipe and a, a, a jacket with a leather patches at the elbow and a driving cap, and, and you were professorial almost. <laughs> What you said on the website, assuming it's thoughts that you have at least solidified since then, was abandon fear without being reckless, and you're in that sweet spot. How do you right. gauge that? What you dare would, for many people, I know, not for you, but would right. many people be reckless? Well, I think that what comes out as showing how not reckless it was is that if someone does it like I did it, spent years thinking about it, planning it, designing it, conferring with friends and family, talking about the idea and what it would mean, researching how different people who have done this sort of thing have lived, you know, what their lives have been like. That's why I think I can, you know, say, and, and obviously when you say how do you gauge it, that is the real trick, right? That's, that's the trick of life right there, to tell when you're being reckless and when you're being overly fearful, to, to 
to adjust yourself in those moments. And it's really hard to do when you're in those moments. So every time I find something that strikes me with a great deal of passion or, or a great deal of, oh, no, I couldn't do that, that's sort of my marker to sort of step back and say, well, wait a minute. Would it really be that bad? Is, you know, could it, is that the worst case scenario? Am I being overly fearful? Or to say, oh, if I want it that much, if I run out and do this, wait, are there possible bad consequences to it? To always have that little second voice in the back. It's when you do something, when you actually take the step to do it, you have to do it with complete confidence. But up until that moment of taking the action, you should be second guessing yourself just to make sure that it's the right action. That makes sense in, in all areas of life, I, I feel. But uh, right. if, if, as you said, this was a transformation project, you began as an undergraduate working yep. in body-based performance art. What I've gathered from my boy's college career, a lot of projects, undergrad or even graduate level, don't come anywhere near meeting the real world test. Oh, yeah, yeah. The, the ivory tower syndrome is a very, very real thing. And it's one of the things that turned me off the most about academics. You know, I, I really love being on a college campus. You know, I love being in school and having a community of people that are, you know, focused with a great deal of intensity on the same thing. So, you know, you're always having the highest possible level discussions on whatever topic is going on, you've got someone who is a good or great mind and has focused themselves on that. Yeah, and it's very often you can't find it. I mean, it's clear the level of, let's say, political discourse in the local bar versus the, the local college campus is going to be greatly divergent. Sometimes you just want somebody who where you're not going over like basic concepts, you know, where you all have a familiar academic foundation where you can reference things, you know, and sort of get past those initial points. You bring up something in a bar. It could be any topic, you know, somebody, be like, oh, yeah, let's talk about cars. You know, you've got the, the guy that's at the peak level of modern engineering. You've got another guy who's going, so internal combustion engine, right? That's the level of separation. But like well, you said, though, a lot of those times, those ideas on the campus, they don't touch the real world, whereas the discussion in the bar very often always touches the real world to the point where it gets sort of sullied by it. So, yeah, they're both kind of out of touch, and then it becomes, well, which one's more dangerous? That's a point, because just a minute ago when you were talking about what the artist intends to convey, and then it's out of his hands, you know, I've dumped a couple of girlfriends over taking them to the Modern Art Museum and having them go, my three-year-old could do that. You know, that that's profoundly stupid, except yeah. it's out of the artist's hands. If he has not communicated, then he hasn't communicated. Well, what your three-year-old can't do is form the intention. Well, I keep trying to achieve, again, what I've I've told my guys, there's got to be a way to get from either or to both and, which is usually the, the best spot. Yep. Mm -hmm. People's impressions of you are often largely projected onto you from their fears about themselves, which they're not in touch with. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's a funny thing for me. It's great for me because it's comedy fodder. The typical, and I've got a bit about, you know, sort of the people who criticize me online, how their criticisms usually reveal, like you said, what their fear, what their shortcoming is. So if I see somebody comment on a YouTube video or a picture of me, I hope that guy likes masturbating because he's going to be alone for the rest of his life. Yeah, you know, it's like, well, 
that's probably the situation that guy is in. And it's, you know, not hard to find out that I'm happily married for over 10 years. Yeah, it's easy to brush off that criticism when it comes from that sort of place. But those are the ones that are always like, oh, he's going to regret that when he gets older. The person saying that is usually younger than me. You know, they've misjudged my age because a lot of people do. The nice thing about being tattooed the way I am is it kind of hides my age. You know what? I'm already older, <laughs> you know, and I don't have the regret because I don't do silly things. I don't rush into them. I bet that's your fear about your life. I bet that person has a million things they wish they'd done or has something else that they've done or they made a bunch of dumb mistakes and now they're convinced that because they were that stupid, everybody else is that stupid. But the initial instinct of many people is to tell you what you ought to be or do and object loudly when you don't agree or comply. Look, you can do whatever you want with your life as long as it falls within my acceptable parameters. <laughs> yeah. yeah. yeah those people, people love to extend you the freedom to do what they think you should do. <laughs> Did you ever see uh, Harold and Maud? Yeah, yeah. Where Maud is saying much of the world's sorrow comes from people who are this, but allow themselves to be treated as that. That's a foundational thing for me, or it has been a foundational thing for me in my thinking for a long time. I usually think that the worst thing that you can do is fail to recognize your own individuality. The second worst thing you can do is fail to recognize everyone else's individuality. You pretty a lot of, nailed that. There's so many people whose sorrow and strife in life comes from the fact that they are desperately trying to be something they are not, someone else. You know, because they have this vision of, they have this idea of who they should be, what a normal good person is. And that person doesn't exist and if it does exist they think it's somebody else and they're trying to be like that someone else instead of trying to be themselves the problem being is that then when they do start to try and be themselves they automatically start forgetting about the fact that hey everybody else is unique and different too so you can't be like hey i figured out life look how good i've got it you should do exactly what i did no you shouldn't you're somebody else you're a different person and until we all respect our own and each other's individuality we're all pretty much screwed yeah. Well, you, I, I've got to ask you, if more outrageous, more extreme is not the way to go, or at least, you know, there's an end to that. The way that I usually say that is uh, I talk to people and such, I'm like, I figured out very early on you can't compete with crazy. You know, I'm willing to put a skewer through my body through training and meditation. There are other people out there that will just simply stab themselves for attention. If that's who you're competing with, you're in a race to suicide. How do you get from an everyday, average guy mindset to suspension and piercing of that radical sort? Well, I believe very strongly in if you're going to know yourself, you can't just sit down and say, okay, me, tell me about me. The only way that you learn who you are is by exploring. That same thing, like the only way you learn what foods you like is by trying a bunch of different kinds of foods. You're going, oh, okay, I like these, I don't like those, I like these. I think that all experience in life is gets treated that way. And you sort of look at it and you say, if I want to know myself, I've got to know how long can I go without food before I start getting grumpy? Uh, how long can I go without sleep before I become intolerable, before I can stop working? And some of these things have real practical use. I mean, once you've fasted a few times or once you've stayed up late a few times, you can start to recognize and you're like, oh, I shouldn't have, I, I feel like I'm going to snap at that person. Don't, that's just me being hungry. That's just me being tired. 
you know, these are things that you should learn growing up, I think. But then you sort of push further afield and see like, okay, I want to know what I'm capable of. Some people, when they have that urge, they want to learn that about themselves, they run a marathon. Running a marathon is a lot more difficult and a lot more strenuous on the body than suspending by hooks. Talk to marathon runners about their first marathon, what their body went through getting to that and the effects of it. You know, it's just you're finding ways to test yourself. You're finding ways to explore who you are, what you can take. Nobody said it was going to be easy. You know, it's, it's all well and good for us to sit here and go, yep, you got to know who you are. You be confident you are. understand who you are. Well, you do that by putting yourself in strange and new situations and seeing how you react. Where do I fall short? I've developed a love for Ethiopian food because I tried it. I've developed a love for sushi back in the day when, ah, fish, ew. But right, I yeah. don't know that I could get over the hump of, well, let's see what happens if I stick a hook in myself and hang from it. Well, the, the, the beautiful thing is that you get to determine your own limits. It's not that you fall short. Perhaps for you, you know you've got enough experience otherwise that you can make that decision for yourself to say, I don't need to hang from hooks. Somebody else, they need to do it. Like for me, I'm not going to run a marathon. I don't feel that I need that experience in my life. For me, I think I would have to put more into learning something from it than I would get just by going through the process of doing it. It doesn't hold that appeal for me. In the last 42 years of life, I've figured out enough about myself to know that I will feel no great achievement having run 26 point whatever mile. So that's the choice that I made. That's a limit that I've imposed on myself just because the, the time and the effort to do it doesn't appeal to me. So it's not about falling short. It's about being willing to test yourself, but also knowing which tests you want to go through. Well, where you are now, would you say that as a human being and as a performer, you've gotten pretty much where you want to go? I think I've gotten to put together the tools at this point that I, you know, I do feel, and this is, you know, a positive thing. It was a few years ago where I was not in a, a great place and I considered quitting, retiring, whatever you want to call it, doing something else to whatever extent. But in the last few years, I've, I've sort of found different places through exploring, through doing this sort of like by being offered gigs that I might have turned down at another time because I didn't think they were the right kind of gigs for, for my act. It wasn't the way I wanted to present myself. Now I've found new places where I fit very, very well and I enjoy them. So it's not about, I don't think that I'm so much where I want to be because we always want to be, you know, bigger and better and strive. But I do feel like I've got a really good tool set now that I can approach move situations and turn them into something that will not only be a good presentation for an audience to receive, but also one that will make me happy in the process of doing it. And that's a pretty good place to be. I have to say that any sideshow performer that can discuss what Wittgenstein would think of his act <laughs> has got a lot of depth. <laughs> Well, we all drown in the deep end, though, right? <laughs> no, nobody drowns in the shallow end of the pool. <laughs> That's an aphorism. Going on to some of the stupid questions. Uh, your band. Yeah. Lizard Skizzard. Liz I can't say it. <laughs> I mess it up myself sometimes. Lizard Skinnerd. The band is kind of in a... I just, the thing with the band is right now, the original idea was it all started with uh, myself and Mossy, the guitarist. Because I always liked the idea of, you know, you might have seen, uh, seen or heard Mitch Hedberg's album where he brought out a jazz bassist to accompany him while he did stand-up. And lots of people have put out albums where, you know, different musicians have added tracks 
to uh, to stand up in spoken word. And I always liked that, and I just thought it would be really cool. Like in my head, I love seeing like big production numbers. You know, I want my stage fight show to be almost like a a Rat Pack James Brown thing, you know, full band, a bar on stage, dancers. You know, I love having all those production values. It's very rare that you can get that on a, a modern sideshow budget or venue, you know, much less tour it around. But, you know, that's part of the dream of a, a show I'd like to put together, which is sort of where we're at now. With the band kind of having to go through personnel and changes and things like that, we've scaled back to it just being me and Malfi again, but with the addition of my stand-up comedy opening act, a guy named Joel Keith from here in Austin, Texas. And the three of us together are literally just about to go out and launch this new project. And this show is kind of a, a mix of Mossy's music. This is going to be sort of his musical vision of creating a, a live soundtrack for what we're doing while we're up there, combined with me doing sideshow and stand-up and Joel doing stand-up, and the three of us working in together sketches and sort of live improv. It's uh, got a lot of elements to it, and I'm actually really... It's one of those things where I'm at that nervous, excited point because it's like, okay, next week we actually go out and find out if we've just been making ourselves laugh or if we can do it for other people too. <laughs> Does your wife uh, ever say, would you for God's sake stay home? <laughs> no, she's actually never said that. She's always been really great about that. When we met, we met in 1999 when she came out to a show that I was on in Austin, Texas. That's back when I was part of the Jim Rose Circus. We met that night spent the night together and then, you know, gone. It was just a, you know, an on-tour one-night stand. We stayed in touch, though. And as a result of that, started seeing each other more, uh, eventually moved in together and, and got married. Megan works as a night nurse, so she gets up about 4 p.m. and uh, then goes to work about 6 p.m. and then gets home from work about 7, 8 a.m. So what most people see as a horrible situation and they can't understand how we can live like this is normal to us. She's far more likely to say to me, all right, you've been home too long, you're stir crazy and you're getting in my way, why don't you book some gigs and go back out on the road some more. <laughs> earlier, much earlier, we were speaking about your tattoos having begun long ago and mm -hmm. what happens to them over time. And I saw when I was making these notes, a picture, a fairly current picture of Enigma who has become at least half faded to a generalized blue. What's going to happen right. to you and what's it going to mean to you? Um, you know, I actually really like the way that the tattoos age. It's a, it's a common question. People are like, oh, what's it going to be like when you're older? I'm like, well, I'll be wrinkly and green, you know? It's interesting to me to watch it sort of settle in and the difference like between fresh work and how it all goes. I mean, I just find that curious. I, I like the process of biologically of what happens with your body when it goes through that, like watching it. And, uh, you know, I think that the results are holding up very well. Part of the reason that I chose the design and the motif I did and the reason that I had the scales done the way they were, the coloring, was because I had done a lot of research into how tattoos age and what I could expect out of it aging over time. So it's really, it's doing what I expected it to do, which is becoming more and more a, a seamless Sort of part. It does blend itself together and level out. It's no longer uh, a big 
thing to have somebody stand out in front of a, a ballet stage and go, come see the tattooed man, because nowadays many of the people on the midway are, are tattooed as much as you, well, almost as much as you. Right. Yeah, for me, the tattoos are sort of the basic. Yeah, you've got to have this much to even begin with, right? And then it's the tongue, the teeth, and the implants that tend to, to sell it more as a, sort of a modified man. But I've rarely gone that way. It's not that I, I can't say that I never have, but for the most part, I haven't actually pitched in terms of selling tickets at the front or even on stage on the inside, the modifications. I'll address them and I'll acknowledge them, but then I'm going to do something for you beyond that. It also allows me or has allowed me to work very well with people whose act has been being the tattooed man or the tattooed woman, because then you just don't pitch me that you pitch. We've got, or for instance, at Coney Island, it was Geek the Geek, the man whose face is tattooed with space. See it on the inside. Also today, you'll see the lizard man, a lizard man. Well, you know, and then, but you know, just don't go into the modification stuff there, so you can actually get away with it. In fact, uh, the first time I was at Coney Island, we had Geek myself. And uh, Angelica, who was still performing as Insectivora then, and it was the sort of thing like, so Eek was the tattooed man, I was the lizard man, and on the inside I was doing, I think I was doing my ear list uh, that, that particular time around, I might have done some other acts as well, and Insectivora was of course doing the insect eating act, and no mention was made of the fact that her face was tattooed, it was just revealed when she pulled off her veil to eat the insects, so that added extra thing. I do think to a certain extent that, yeah, you can't get away with just being a tattooed man that much anymore. I mean, a couple of people are making reasonably good goes at it, like uh, Matt Gaughan, for instance. But, he's, you know, he's got a theme and he's, he's personable and it's, there's more to it. It's not just that he's tattooed his face. These days, pretty much everybody's doing it. I imagine there's, right. not, there's not a tip you can gather on Coney Island where you don't see three or four full sleeves at least. Right. The nice thing about it, though, is, is that that doesn't deter people from coming inside, or at least it doesn't deter those people from coming inside. If I see someone heavily tattooed, and this happened several times in London over this last seven-week run, if I look out there and I see someone who's heavily tattooed, I actually feel like, okay, they're usually going to be an easy turn for me. I'm, I'm usually like, oh, well, this guy's going to buy a ticket as soon as I get his attention. Even if I have, if I have to call him out by name to get him to turn his head to look, that's all it's going to take before he walks over here and buys a ticket and comes in. Well, once you get past, oh, wow, oh, wow, that's so neat. How do you this? Why did you that? What are some of the more challenging questions you get asked by people who know a good deal already about body modification? There are obviously some people who get really different. They're like, oh, why would you... You know, you're, you're making tattooing a freak show. You're perpetuating a, a bad stereotype. Or, you know, people just saying, oh, you know, I'm not a freak. I would hate to be called a freak. And you're encouraging everyday people to see heavily tattooed people as freaks. There's some of them just don't know the history. Others of them know that and, and make a really good point. And that was sort of a challenge to me where I think my response to that has always been, well, sideshow as it is today, whatever it is today, this is a different thing than it was back then. It's changed as well. So just as tattooing, piercing, and body modification have changed and become viewed differently in our culture, so has this sort of entertainment. So I think what I do simultaneously recognizes the history of it without denying any of it, but at the same time doesn't have the, the bad connotations. You know, I think that it's very easy for me to say if 
you look at me as a freak because I've got freak tattooed across my chest in big letters. You know, every now and then I'll get somebody in the audience because I walk right at the beginning of the show and say, I'm a freak. I've had people say, no, you're not. And, you know, or after shows, they'll be like, no, you're not a freak. You're not a freak. And then it just, it took me a while to sort of figure out how to communicate with them that the problem is that they've only heard that word used in a bad way. But if they can't see how positive it is from someone who's claiming it, you know, when I'm saying I'm a freak, that should really make you think, wow, freaks are great things because I'm a successful self-employed businessman. You know, I'm a, a reasonably well-educated man who's doing fairly good in his life, has a beautiful wife, owns his own home. So if that's what a freak gets, what's the problem with being a freak? I think that you just got to get them to see that things have changed and it can be a positive thing now. I would have thought since Woodstock, the word freak would have been a little diffused. I think I think it is mostly diffused, but I also think that when you get someone who, and this happened to me in uh, in Adelaide earlier this year, was a, a woman and a little kid, and the the woman said it first, and then the kid just wouldn't stop yelling it, and it was kind of breaking up the show. And I was like, I'll explain to you after the show if you'll be nice and quiet. And that's you know, he was quiet. And afterwards, I talked to him. And it's the thing, it's like, yeah, for most people, I think it's an absolute non-starter. It's not a big, people like, oh, freak, who cares, you know, that sort of thing. But for those who do, they're the ones that are just so, they've got their jaws locked onto it. They're not going to let go. So you've really got to diffuse them. And I think it's, that's actually important because if you look back historically, those people are the sharp point of the wedge. If you don't stop it there, it does become the, the slippery slope. It does become the wedge that drives it open. Historically, how many people went to the freak show and complained that, you know, the poor lobster-handed boy was being exploited? Not very many, but nobody stopped them that if they just at the first moment went, hey, that's how he makes his living. Why don't you talk to him and see whether or not he's happy? Why, if they had reached out and stopped it there, then those people would have never had a chance to drum up popular opinion among other people who didn't know any better until you get this whole ignorant mob that had the effect that it did of effectively shutting down the shows and ruining some of its revenue, putting performers out of business because they were poor, exploited freaks. If you stop it right away and explain how that perception is wrong, then it doesn't spread. If you think back to your most recent thoughts and considerations about your career, your artistic appearance, where do you go from here? Well, uh, I think the next thing is, um, as I mentioned, you know, just, you know, just a week from today, I'll be doing the first show with a brand new project. And I think that the answer for anybody who wants to call themselves an artist, an entertainer, whatever, the next step is always create the next thing, do the next show, whether or not that next show be one that you've done a hundred times before, or it's the first time you're going to do it. You know, I do consider myself an entertainer. So that's what I'm going to do. From here, I go on to try and entertain as many people as much as I can. But is there anything to say about the next tattoo, the next modification? I'm glad that I can say I believe I'm in the home stretch. So for me, the next thing in terms of modification, that is just keep working until all these scales are filled in green. And the more radical acts, the next suspension, two hooks, three hooks, four hooks? Um. Yeah, I don't know so much. With the, I haven't done a lot with suspension recently. I'm still active in that community. Some of my best friends are the founders and pillars of of that community, and I enjoy it. But it's um, 
shifted for me from being a public thing to more of a private thing, a, a thing with friends. That said, it's usually one of the first things that I bring out whenever a TV show hits me up in an email or a phone call, like, hey, have you got a stunt? And I'm like, well, okay, here's you know some ideas. And that's got a lot of impact, so I like that one. I've been really working, though, a lot in terms of figuring out stunts, like what I've been doing with Space Cowboy, the double sword swallow, like coming up with different presentations of some of these things where the extremist comes from the theatricalness of it more so. You know, I often think that, or at least I've come to think later in my life that the more risk you're taking, the more you might be using the risk as a crutch to keep people interested. You know, the sort of the evil can evil phenomenon where, okay, you gotta be about to die or nobody cares. Whereas, well, can't we just make it showier? Can't we add some story to it? Can't we add some theatrics to it? There's very simple things that can get a big, big response. You know, it doesn't always have to risk breaking your neck or setting yourself on fire or tearing the flesh off your back. Eric Sprague, I sure appreciate you visiting with me. Thank you for giving me this much time and your My pleasure. Your rare visits to Texas, it seems. And I hope everything goes well for you in the future. Thank you. Luna Park and Dreamland on Coney Island in 1903. World's Fairs of 1939, 62 and 65. These places are the stuff of dreams. All of them vanished long ago, but now you can visit them, many in vivid color. Long gone performers and attractions in The Carnival's Been and Gone, a two and a half hour DVD that lets you shoot the shoots at Coney Island a hundred years ago. Ride the rides at Luna Park and Steeplechase when they lit up the night with wonder. Ride the parachute jump. The Silver Streak. Actually see inside many shows. See what they're doing in the Ecstasy Girl Show. And look inside four girl shows all in sparkling color. Now I can stand out here and tell you that on the inside we have shake dances, oriental dances, exotic dances, the little lady that does the dance of temptation. You boys that have been to the Hudson Theater in New Jersey, you know what I'm talking about. Eh? You'll see the human automobile tire and the man who hangs himself. Zip and Pip, the pinheads. Princess Lala, the fat lady. Albert Alberta, the half-man, half-woman. The strangest sights from the island. Freaks from the four corners of the world. What two nickels, one dime, a tenth part of a dollar. We've got the show if you've got the dime. It's just starting. So hurry, hurry, look them over, the lady without a head. They're all inside. These places have vanished, but you've heard about them all your life. The films have been rescued and restored, shaky images stabilized, faded color brought back to vivid life. Shot by people who were there in the glory days of legendary amusements, this is no idle tour of high-minded cultural exhibits. You'll see Billy Rose's Aquacade, Nature's Greatest Mistakes, The Midget City, Watch Gully Gully, King of Magic, and the Wonder Mouse Pitchman. Dozens of legendary attractions, over two and a half hours of wonder, now at a new low price. Order today 
from goodmagic.com. Ballycast listeners have responded enthusiastically to the occasional really ancient archival sound I've found and presented, from a performance by the last castrato singer to the really horrifying sideshow blow-off in episode 24. My guests tonight come from the far past. They're minstrels, not Renfair balladeers. They're performers of a peculiar and troubling American variety arts genre, the minstrel show. It was such a popular phenomenon, every bit as big as vaudeville, which came later, and studies of it invariably get caught up in the deep and ugly strain of racism that permeated the genre. I don't intend to overlook or excuse the racism, but I do think it's worth a careful effort to analyze it for exactly what it was, to understand how it was seen then, and to look at its legacy in entertainment. So let's begin with a quick bit of history. In the early 19th century, commercial entertainment was divided along class lines. There was opera for the upper class, melodramas and concerts for the urban middle class, and coarse variety entertainment in saloons for men of the working class. There really wasn't anything for the general audience suitable for men and women, young and old. And then in 1828, a white entertainer, Thomas D. Rice, became very popular with his trademark blackface song-and-dance character, Jim Crow. And in showbiz, success spawns imitators, lots of them, and very quickly. In 1843, there was a popular touring act of Austrian musicians called the Tyrolese Minstrel Family. Well, four white New York actors saw the success of that act and staged a spoof, a, a lampoon of the Austrian act, done in blackface with broad dialect humor, which they called Dan Emmett's Virginia Minstrels. It was a surprise hit, and soon other entertainers were staging copycat minstrel shows without any reference to the Austrian act that was being made fun of. The public loved them, and minstrel shows quickly became America's most popular type of stage entertainment. Now, what was a minstrel show like? It was a music and comedy review featuring large bands of white performers in blackface makeup, portraying various aspects of what the white American public imagined about black Americans, and what they believed were comforting fictions. They wanted a program of variety acts wrapped in a warm bath of nostalgia for the good old days, meaning the fancied peace of the old plantation in which everyone was happy and knew their place. The language that so offends us today, like the liberal use of words like nigger and coon, would bother almost no one at that time. Coon or black crow characters were common in that area. You could make fun of them without hearing a single objection from anybody. Now, if that sounds racist, it is. But racism was perfectly okay then and for many years after, as far as the public was concerned. Let me give you some examples. Every magician listening has read Tarbell and learned effects themed on Ching Chong Chinky Chinamen and mysterious Hindus. That's racist. It's really racist. Before the civil rights struggle, the casual malice underlying this type of portrayal wasn't really apparent to the average American, even though it was there. Remember, the minstrel show began before the Civil War, and in most of America, 
Blacks were slaves. They were property you could think of in just exactly the same way you thought of a farm animal. And after slavery was abolished, a white American could still spend a whole lifetime without encountering a black American they had to pay much attention to. They didn't live next door to you. They weren't principal of your child's school. They didn't work at your bank or your grocer unless they were in the basement or mopping the floor. So you could project anything you wanted on them, and the audience would generally agree, yes, yes, it's true, they're, they're just exactly like that. White audiences bought this fiction without objection. It was a comfortable reassurance that everything was okay and everyone was happy in their place. So you could structure a variety show around a standard set of crude, stereotyped characters, throw in a few acts that had nothing to do with the theme. You might find a, a light classical violin solo in amongst the theme of the happy singing darkies back at the old home in the South. You could get a nostalgic flavor with your entertainment, watching the happy slaves celebrating after hours on the old plantation, or putting on dandy formal dress and broadly aping the manners of their betters. Minstrel shows evolved a structure and stock characters with several distinct parts. The first part was called the first part. You could buy cylinder recordings of an original minstrel first part, and everybody knew what to expect. A grand ensemble dressed as dandies would parade onto the stage. The interlocutor, the master of ceremonies, would order, Gentlemen, be seated and the company would sit in a semicircle on stage facing the audience and play an overture with broad gestures and exaggerated flourishes. The Imperial Minstrels, introducing their original Minstrel first part, author and photograph companies. Gentlemen, be seated. Introductory Overture. Then the interlocutor, backed up by the end man or corner man sitting on the two ends of the semicircle, Mr. Tambo playing tambourine and Mr. Bones playing bones, would engage in light banter and simple jokes. Say, Sammy, can you tell me how to make a lean baby fat? Why no, Billy. How would you make a lean baby fat? Drop him out of a third-story window, and he'll come down plump. <laughs> By the way, Billy, where's your brother John now? Oh, brother John, he's out west mining. Mining? Mining what? Mining his own business. <laughs> now, Samuel, can you tell me why is twice ten like twice eleven? Why, well, my boy, I can't see that twice ten can be like twice eleven. Yes, indeed they are. Well, explain yourself. Twice ten are twenty, and twice eleven are twenty-two. Oh, then there would follow a series of comic and sentimental songs, all brought to a rousing finish with a cakewalk or walk-around. This was a musical promenade by the company that was set as a challenge dance, with several members stepping forward in turn, each to do a brief specialty bit, ostensibly trying to outdo each other. 
And you'll see remnants of those elements today. Witness the exaggerated antics of the marching bands at traditionally black colleges. Witness the common practice at some informal music or dance performance of allowing room for a few performers to step out in front and perform their particular vigorous, flashy specialty bit. The second part would include, in a fairly flexible order, some more songs and a featured specialty act and a comedy routine played at the front of the stage before the closed oleo curtain. There would probably be a stump speech, that's a satirical address in the form of a monologue full of bumpkin malapropisms and jokes. There'd often be a brief play, and the whole affair closed with what was expected, the third part, the grand afterpiece, advertised as an elaborate performance by the entire company in full plantation costume, doing an extended skit with music and dancing and a big finish. So let's hear An Evening with the Minstrels, which started as a series of eight phonograph cylinders recorded in 1903 each about three and a half minutes long, giving a condensed home version of a minstrel show. I've trimmed some material and added a bit from other sources. I'm not pretending that this is actually a good recreation of a minstrel show. I'm sure that the actual touring performers would have polished and presented their material a lot better than this, and the performances on the cylinder are very rushed because, of course, of the limited length of the medium. But still, I think it's a good representation of the script and the music that took the nation by storm. So here are Edward Meeker, William F. Hooley, Steve Porter, John H. Veeling, Frank Stanley, Len Spencer, Harry McDonough, every one of them white, billed as the Ebony Emperors and their Ethiopian Carnival of Melody. Gentlemen, be seated. Look there, Harry. I done hear you all have got married. Well, I, I ain't a saying that I ain't. I ain't asking if you ain't. I, I'm asking ain't you is. <laughs> By the way, Harry, isn't you working for Skinner and Company? Mm-hmm. I, I have a position as collector. Oh, why, that's a new... Why, that's a munificent... Why, that's a typical position. How'd you all come to get that, huh? Why, I, I told them that I collected the bill from you. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Collins will sing Angel Gabriel. Oh, my soul, my soul, and the grand grand the grand 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 grand
and I will arrive and I love the city by I would shout, I would shout, tell them, and I'll wake up early in the morn. And I will arise and I'll rub the city by What am worse than reading cats and dogs on a stormy night, huh? Why, hailing taxi <laughs> When does a cow become real estate? When she has turned into a field. Mm-hmm. If an ice wagon weighs two tons, yes. a block of ice, 200 pounds, uh-huh. 18, 3,000 pounds, uh-huh. and the man on the front of the wagon, 160 pounds, mm-hmm. what does the man on the back of the wagon weigh? Why, he weighs, he weighs ice. <laughs> <laughs> so bye-bye, Maeva, bye-bye. Ladies and gentlemen, I take pleasure in introducing Mr. Frank Turnell, who will sing my Creole too. I say, one moment, now one moment, please, please don't sing that song. Well, sir, why not? Well, I'll tell you, you see, I had an old mule once down on the farm, and... Well, uh, what's that got to do with my song? Go on, Mr. Leader.
Chimes of the Golden Bells. Think of dying, don't you never try for the pray? Don't you never think of trying for to live a different way? You'd better stop this gambling, play a policy and fall on your clothes. If you don't tell me you're scrambling when Oh Gabriel trumpet blows. Oh listen to the bells way up in the air. Oh listen to the bells you hear and can't tell well. Well, are you composing now? 
composing? No, I'm decomposing. Well, if I couldn't play any better than that, I'd blow my brains out. Hey, you'd have to be a pretty good shot. <laughs> well, you're engaged. Get together. All ready? Yeah. Let her go. I just had a nice bunch of fog legs for dinner, and I feel like croaking. I sing a little song entitled, Oh, How Dry I Am, or I Wish I Had a Beer. Turn the crank, Professor. Hey, don't blow that foam over this day. That's rotten. You think you're funny, but you ain't got a laugh yet. Oh, I don't know. I see a lot of men going out to smile. <laughs> Hey, boys, if I had this to do again, I wouldn't be an actor. Well, you might make some voice a mistake. Why don't you sing something? Well, you see, I got such a bad cold, I can't sing. Well, he's got bad cold, too, but he has to listen. <laughs> hey, you're good. I think I'll take you around with me. Well, I know a nice little place right around the corner. No, no way! Oh, well, that's one on me. Well, I'll sing you a little song called Wheels. I call it Wheels because it keeps the run in my head. Turn the ball loose, Professor. I'll sing a little tenor, sing a little baritone, also sing a little bear. Hey, are you crazy? Crazy? No, why? Why, you're way off your feet. Well, what you asked me to sing for, then? Why, that's the only way to make you stop talking. Is that so? <laughs> Say, you're a comedy bunch of wing jammers down there, ain't you? <laughs> Why, hello, Krausmeyer. Go away and let you sleep. Oh, wake up, wake up. This ain't a hotel. I get it? Well, I won that hat and a foot race for Dunlap. One lap for Dunlap. I got it all the run. <laughs> oh, no, I'm not fooling. I'm serious, fellas. I say not. you too much. Why, say, you're all so green, it's just like being out in the country to stand out here and look at you. Whoa, who opened that jackpot? We're tired, so very tired. Yes, they're awfully, awfully Tired, eh? Well, so am I. Hello. What's this? The girl I left behind me won't say anything I leave behind me. You guys can have. Well, well leave the thing. Oh, very well. I'll... 
this I am to be the swell end of the season, and nobody but the blue-blooded aristocracy of Dark Town's 400 will be allowed on the floor. Now, I don't suppose for a minute that any of you coons has got a river. That's right, because you won't need it where I'm at. I'm just as good as a regiment of razors, and when I step in the middle of the floor, it means give me room. Now, you all know you can't walk on a floor covered with blood. Now, I'm the judge and the jury, and if any of you sad coons tries to butt in and test for me, I'll cut you down in the flower of your youth, you hear me? Take the old partner for the cakewalk. Things and papers, there. What are you doing now, Sam? Why, I'm on the press. 
I'm working on Kerry Nation's new paper, the Daily Hatchet. What are you doing? The Hatchet? Oh, don't act me. I'm on the Daily Weekly Morning Herald. Why, I thought that was a tri-weekly. It is. It comes out one week and tries to come out the next. Here's a copy of our latest issue. Listen to this editorial. Owing to unforeseen circumstances, our last issue did not appear. Hello? Exchange. We'll exchange an automobile somewhat damaged for an invalid chair or a pair of crutches. Well, that fellow must have been up against it, all right. Obituary. Died last Friday. Mary Dusenberry. Why, that's Bill Dusenberry's wife. Yes, and poor Bill's been going around looking like a stalk of asparagus. A stalk of asparagus? Yes, I guess because his second half is under the ground. <laughs> hey, look at this. For sale. Talking machine in fair condition. You got one? No, but I got a wife and mother-in-law in great condition. Say, listen to this. A small man named Jones with a heel in the hole of his trousers committed arsenic by swallowing a dose of suicide tomorrow. He leaves a child and six small wives to lament his law. Why, confound that printer. That's one of my news items. He's got it all mixed up. Oh, it was the printer, eh? Say, here's a testimonial. Dear doctor, your nerve tonic has helped me wonderfully. Last week I was so weak I couldn't lift a weak feet. Now, thanks to you, dear doctor, I can lick my husband. <laughs> Situations wanted. Oh, I say, here's Murphy advertising for a job. Isn't he a... Oh, no, Murphy drinks with perfect ease. But it says he's a man of regular habit. That's right, he has a regular habit of getting drunk three times a week. Why, last night I saw him going up the street with a bucket of beer done up in a newspaper. Oh, well, you mustn't believe everything you see in the papers. One day we saw a lady walking through a vacant lot. Dressed up in a Sunday go to meet his But she didn't see the lady go to grazing near the spot where she took the pick of a little road. But still he saw the lady skating going down his head, and then he sent her flying through the air. In the hustle and the puzzle, you could hear her bustle rustle, and it showed that there was papers even there. There, niggles, the folks are waiting. Peace. Yeah, niggles, you all then got your money in your pockets. Now, before you have your chicken feet with watermelon fimmies, I want to ask you all what you're going to do in the window, huh? Yeah, and what you going to do in the winter? Is your friend going to money in the spring? You may go to your holiday, drink your holiday, it's a mighty awesome thing to Hey, niggas, here come the Piccaninny band. All in, goose, all in. <laughs> When I used to work upon the levee, many happy times I used to see. Hauling in the cotton bales to heavy, oh, that was a happy time for me. Then roll on the ground, 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 roll on the ground. 
How long did the minstrel show's influence last in show business and in the American public's memory? Well, the answer is it won't die. Many people believe these shows have been dead for a hundred years, and as a business, the genre did only enjoy a thirty-year peak. 1909 saw the last one to play Broadway. Only three troops remained by 1919, but still, you'll see unabashed minstrel routines in Hollywood films of the 1940s and 50s, in television variety shows of the 1960s, even into the 70s. There are examples on YouTube, and I don't mean bits by black performers. I mean full-on blackface numbers. Believe it or not, the New York Folklore Society disclosed that at least one small community in the Adirondacks was putting on a community entertainment amateur annual blackface show as late as 1991 as a sort of local tradition. Now, from time immemorial, it was always common to jeer at the imagined habits of country bumpkins, whether they were black or white or immigrants. This sort of thing was a staple of comedy, and if you think we're so much more sophisticated now and we'd never sink to that level, remember the Beverly Hillbillies is still rerun on cable to this day. Marx Brothers films depicting an immigrant Jewish trickster in an Italian robe are considered classic comedy. Records of this sort of performance were big sellers. Let's hear a bit of Levinsky at the Wedding by Julian Rose. In 1917, it sold a massive 222,000 copies. Hello, everybody. Say, I want to tell you something. When anyone goes to a wedding nowadays, everybody wants to know what happened down there, what you had to eat, who was there, and everything about the wedding. Seems to me that everybody is getting married nowadays. I want to get married too, but every time I want to marry a girl for love. I find out she ain't got any money. Last week, a fellow that works for me, he comes to me and he says, "Mr. Abraham, I want to get married." So I give him a half a day off. Sometimes it takes longer. He sent me invitation to the wedding. It says at the top, "Mr. Abraham Levinsky, gentlemen, your presence is requested." Right away from the presence. They wouldn't wait till a fellow he comes to the wedding. They want the presence first. Stingy people. On the bottom of the card it says, "Please come in evening dress." Jackie Lieberman came in his pajamas. You ought to see the bride. She had hanging in the front a lace curtain. In the summer they used it to cover mother's picture in the parlor. She wore low-neck slippers, white dress cut out delicatessen. The dress was cut so low the whole night I couldn't look her in the face. And right here by the necktie she got a bunch of don't you forget it knots. With lily of the violet and the hair, the hair was upholstered in the latest style, Pompey Doodle style. It was done up in a bundle, a physics knot, white regret sticking out, and her teeth, her teeth was beautiful, both of them. One was brass, and if it wasn't for two pimples on her left nose, she would be such a nice looking. Well, she is a nice girl. I know that young girl already for the last thirty-five, forty years. She's fat. He ought to be very happy. That woman got a great future behind her, and the groom mm, had on an opera house hat, silk. You squeeze him from the top, and you make him flat like a pancake. Everybody was playing with the hat. 
He had on a new suit for $14. All wool, double busted. It was made to order for his brother when he got married. Fit him good, too, all except the coat and pants. The pants was a little tight. It was all right when he stood up, but when he sat down, he stood up. He's got in the pocket a gold box from 18 carats, open face, steam binder with a fist cheese movement. That watch was quarantined for 20 years, dollar a week. And when the couple marched down the alley, the organ was playing Mandelbaum's wedding march. Three little girls held up the bride's dress, and the pants, the groom's pants was held up with a safety pin. Then the little flower girls chucked flowers all over the floor. Paper buns, two pounds for a nickel. And when the rabbi said, Do you take this lawful woman to be a regular wife? She said, Say yes, you lobster, I'll knock your eye out. Well, say, don't you go away. When we have a little drink, I'm going to tell you some more about the wedding. And to bring it up to today, the rap gangster character is no different in spirit, not one bit, from the trickster stock character of the minstrel show. So, right up to this day, we, whoever we is, can laugh at them, whoever them is. Remember that next time you laugh at a joke about the Amish. Minstrel Show Recordings, courtesy of the Internet Archive. Luna Park and Dreamland on Coney Island in 1903. World's Fairs of 1939, 62 and 65. These places are the stuff of dreams. All of them vanished long ago, but now you can visit them, many in vivid color. Long gone performers and attractions in The Carnival's Been and Gone, a two and a half hour DVD that lets you shoot the shoots at Coney Island a hundred years ago. Ride the rides at Luna Park and Seeplechase when they lit up the night with wonder. Ride the parachute jump. The Silver Streak. Actually see inside many shows. See what they're doing in the Ecstasy Girl Show. And look inside four girl shows all in sparkling color. Now I can stand out here... And tell you that on the inside we have shake dances, oriental dances, exotic dances, the little lady that does the dance of temptation. You boys that have been to the Hudson Theater in New Jersey, you know what I'm talking about there. You'll see the human automobile tire and the man who hangs himself. Zip and Pip, the pinheads. Princess Lala, the fat lady. Albert Alberta, the half man, half woman. The strangest sights on the island. Ricks from the four corners of the world. What two nickels, one dime, a tenth part of a dollar. We've got the show if you've got the dime. It's just starting. So hurry, hurry. Look them over, the lady without a head. They're all inside. These places have vanished, but you've heard about them all your life. The films have been rescued and restored, shaky images stabilized, faded color brought back to vivid life. Shot by people who were there in the glory days of legendary amusements, this is no idle tour of high-minded cultural exhibits. You'll see Billy Rose's Aquacade, Nature's Greatest Mistakes, The Midget City, Watch Gully Gully, King of Magic, and the Wonder Mouse Pitchman, 
dozens of legendary attractions, over two and a half hours of wonder, now at a new low price. Order today from goodmagic.com. Ballycast is produced by Wayne Kaiser for Blue Ridge Entertainment under a Creative Commons 3.0 attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. That means you can keep it, copy it, share it with a friend, just tell them where it came from, don't change it, and don't sell it. If you enjoyed it, you can subscribe at Ballycast.com. And please also see our web sales and support site, goodmagic.com. Visit us, link to us, subscribe to the podcast, and most importantly, enjoy. Thanks for riding. Please exit to your left. Are you looking for work? Well, not if I can find anything else to do.